0: Hello and welcome to the Humankind Podcast, brought to you by Humanist Society Scotland. I'm Chelsea Shapur, a young Humanist Scotland Ambassador, and I'm your host for today's podcast. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the role that religion still plays in Scotland's schools and how we'd like to see this change. First up is Thought for the Podcast, which is written and presented by Humanist Society Scotland celebrant and school teacher Shona Sharp, who reflects on the benefits of teaching children and young people objectively about religious and non-religious viewpoints.
1: My name is Shona Sharp, and I'm a Humanist Society Scotland celebrant as well as a teacher of primary and secondary education. Up until a few years ago, I specialised in religious and moral education, which is part of the curriculum for all pupils in Scotland, and the Certificated Religious, Moral and Philosophical Studies, a qualification offered in many schools to fourth-year pupils and above. I will say here that I'm speaking from my experience of a small number of schools, and I'm sure things are different across Scotland. I also only have experience of working in non-denominational schools. Teaching RMPS to senior pupils was extremely rewarding. The course allows pupils to explore the topics objectively to begin with, and then encourages personal reflection and opinion with now newly informed reasoning. It was wonderful to witness these young people asking questions, having interesting conversations and a few heated debates. Things, however, become a little more challenging when it comes to RME in the broad general education. RME comes with a lot of preconceived ideas of why do I have to do this, miss I don't believe in God, or maybe passed down from parents where RME was boring when I was in school. And I think many of us can relate to that from our own school days. But I think RME is an invaluable opportunity to address misinformation and intolerance in our society. I believe we need to get this right starting in primary school. There is anecdotal evidence of primary teachers staring away from some topics from fear of ill-informed controversy with Islam being a good example. This is exactly why we need to be smarter in our use of RME. If we wait to address topics such as Islamophobia in secondary school, it's often too late to change entrenched opinions of some of our young people. I'm sure there are schools who are doing excellent work in this area And it might be a good idea to share these models nationally. Another area which in my experience needs to be addressed in some schools is religious observance, not helped by the fact that it is still often confused by some with religious education. And here I'm talking about non-denominational schools. We only need to look at statistics of religious belief in Scotland to see that we must strive to be more inclusive when it comes to religious observance. The government guidance for religious observance has again, in my opinion, got it right, suggesting time for reflection be a better term, where the spiritual needs of every individual, whether from a faith or non-faith perspective, is met. Words can't explain how I felt each time I attended the annual interfaith conference for senior pupils at the secondary school I work in, which was part of their religious observance. This conference, in a neutral location, was attended by many speakers of different faiths, including Humanist Society Scotland, where pupils had the chance to listen and ask questions of those living their beliefs. The most rewarding feeling was that the pupils left feeling the same way I did, their hearts and minds filled with understanding and compassion. Now, who doesn't want that?
0: Thanks, Shona. Next up, we have a conversation between Humanist Society Scotland's Chief Exec Fraser Sutherland and Professor Graham Nixon, a senior lecturer at the University of Aberdeen and an expert in the philosophy of education. In this short conversation, Fraser and Professor Nixon talk about the humanist aims of an end to compulsory religious observance and religion based segregation in Scottish schools.
2: Good to see you, Graham. I wanted to talk to you because I know you've done some fantastic research on the beliefs of educators, particularly those looking at religion and education. I wondered if you just give us a a very quick summary of of, of that research that you did. It was quite interesting.
3: Thanks, Fraser. So we did a a survey of English and Scottish teachers of religious education or religious moral education or religious moral and philosophical studies, as it's sometimes called, Um, an online survey. And we asked them what were their beliefs, uh, how did they self-identify? Or the agnostic uh, theist or atheist, and yeah, so we, we wanted to kind of examine the presupposition that to teach that subject, you are someone of faith. Certainly, remember myself when I first became a teacher of our RMPS, as I like to call it. The comments from colleagues, um, you know, don't swear in front of Graham, he's a man in the cloth, and all that stuff. And I just kind of wanted to examine that, you know, what, to what extent is that the case? Now, given that what we know about census and social attitude survey data. Was it the case? Does Is this kind of intergenerational memory? Does it stand the test and confirm the presupposition? opposition Or is something happening equally within the RNPS profession as it's happening in wider society?
2: How did the study work then? Was it just a, a, a kind of open survey? Was there a, was there a group of um, teachers that you approached in particular?
3: Sure. So um, we uh, use Facebook. So there are north of the border, there's about, uh, I think it's about 900 um, teachers of, of RMPS, uh, as I will call it for the rest of our chat, I guess, uh, in a Facebook group called RME Connections. And uh, in the wider UK, there's a supporting RE network on Facebook as well. So we launched our, our survey, sent them the link, and harvested uh, more than the demographics, actually. We asked them not only about what their own self-identification was, in terms of belief, but actually we asked them about approaches to the subject, and we asked them about how religions should be taught. And that was one of our key hypotheses: was that there might be a tendency to offer a, a sympathetic or sanitised or an essentialized view of religious traditions, which we think is problematic for a number of reasons. It's, it's kind of poor education, apart from anything else, but it really uh, is not to represent adequately the complex multifarious nature of these wisdom traditions so that was uh, yeah so we we cast the net pretty wide so we got the kind of uh self-identification data and then what we could do was cross-tabulate that with how they think the subject should be taught
2: so this this problem that you kind of identify of of sanitizing the education if you like of of religion What does that look like? Is that um, just oversimplifying?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess the sanitising and the centralising tend to come together. There's this kind of uh, assumption, and you see it in um, political figures and obviously religious figures, that um, bad religion... Isn't religion, mm-hmm. um, you know? So, for example, when asked to respond to a terrorist outrage, you've got certain figures like Dalai Lama, like uh, Barack Obama, saying, "Well, these guys are not Muslims, or they're not Buddhists in Myanmar, um, mm-hmm. because true Christianity, true Islam, true Buddhism isn't like that." Uh, and we think that's problematic from an academic perspective, given, as I say, how just how complex uh, these traditions are, and open to interpretation.
2: And so then you were saying that there was a, almost a, is there a connection then between what the teacher views of this kind of sanitization and their own views? What was what was the connection you found? Sure.
3: Um, so I guess allied I, I to that hypothesis was the idea that we thought that RME, RE, RMPS is subject to a pressure to um, address certain problems in society to uh, generate pro-social behaviour, uh, to offset images in the media, and the education is under the pressure to do that. So you, what you might be having, although we kind of gone some way from being confessional in the RE classroom, mm-hmm. that there might be a different type of confession at play that was leading to this kind of sanitization. Getting back to your question, I mean, the key finding in terms of the beliefs of teachers did surprise the presupposition I mentioned earlier on, because we found that not only are over 50% of RE teachers uh, non-religious, but actually you are more likely to be non-religious, atheistic or agnostic as an RE teacher than you would be as a member of the UK public. This could higher in terms of non-belief than the census and social action survey um, suggests, which not surprising to us, Because we're familiar with our colleagues in the profession, we know that many of them are completely welded to the idea of a non-confessional, open, exploratory, philosophical discipline. And hence the debates about the title for the subject and why I want it to be called RMPS. uh, And why I I welcome the uh, English education authorities now calling it religion and world views, because I think that's a much more inclusive perspective. So again, just to return to your actual question there about the connection between self-identification and tendencies to sanitize, what was slightly more surprising, because you found that it was there was not a strong correlation between being a theist, for example, and sanitizing, that they were equally likely, even though you self-identified as atheistic or agnostic, to provide a simplistic and perhaps sometimes overly sanitized presentation of religions in the classroom. I mean, we've had some pushback from the profession about this because I think to be fair to them, that can be something to do with logistics. Because if you've only got 45 to 50 minutes with young people once a week to deliver a unit on Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, humanism, whatever it may be the case, there's going to be a you know a pressure to simplify so we we suggest we a series of suggestions about how teachers can avoid this however and that we can however always kind of qualify our language you know talk about multiple christianities talk about multiple islams and make sure that that diversity is represented in our resources and our displays and particularly in our language that we use around um, religious and philosophical traditions so yeah so the, the, yeah that that kind of did surprise us this this pressure to address some kind of citizenship agenda, mm-hmm. seem to be equally powerful on teachers of any persuasion of belief.
2: That's interesting. So it's not necessarily, the approach taken isn't necessarily just about the critical evaluation or understanding of religion
3: I think think that's a very live live pressure. And if you look at the Scottish curriculum, Curriculum for Excellency, you know, in terms of one of the four capacities is about citizenship. Yes, there's the language of critical thinking and things like that elsewhere. But um, if you look at one of the the sub-bullet points under that that capacity for uh, citizenship, you, you see there there's kind of an agenda to look at ethical approaches to complex issues. Whereas I've always wanted to flip that, so it's complex approaches to ethical issues because there's there's, a, there's an inherent kind of confessionalism there, albeit maybe not of necessarily of a religious character.
2: I was interested what you said about the percentages of the teachers being, you know, more likely to be non-religious or atheist, agnostic than the general population. Was that filtered for age profile as well? Because obviously, I appreciate that teachers may. Will be slightly younger than the overall UK population? Because they, they won't include retired um, individuals.
3: That's that's a great question. And we do we could do that, but we haven't. We've got eight years of service as part of our question and okay. also age. But it would be fascinating to do that. I think another thing we wanted to find out about was degree backgrounds, qualifications yes. for the subject. That, that, again, was born of a suspicion that, a concern that people weren't necessarily having the adequate qualifications to enter the profession and that was borne out more in england than in scotland the general teaching council in scotland does a fairly good job as a gatekeeper there's an underlying challenge there of course if you've got a qualification called religious moral and philosophical studies arguably there's not a degree in the land that would qualify you adequately to teach such a massive subject so so that
2: entry then into teacher training for rmps what is the current kind of requirements for becoming an RMPH teacher? What what would they normally have studied?
3: Sure. So uh, I was involved in, in rewriting the memorandum for entry into the teaching profession because, as, as I think I've, I've kind of hinted at, I'm, I'm fairly keen on the widening uh, an understanding of the subject to make it more inclusive. So for that reason, the, the list of cognate or relevant subjects for entry into RMPS nowadays includes things like you know, uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. whether it's metaphysics or moral, Phil, or whatever, uh, but also um, uh, philosophy of religion, psychology, anthropology of religion. You we know, want to bring those disciplines in. So it's much broader now than what you would traditionally find, whether it would be divinity, theology or, or religious studies. It's challenging to find the wording that's that's kind of broad enough uh, and welcoming enough. And one of the things that we have found, myself and colleagues, in initial teacher education is that it's becoming increasingly hard to recruit for this subject area.
2: So the the numbers of applicants for becoming an RMEPS teacher is, is, has dropped, has it?
3: It certainly has. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's, there's there's research at UK levels showing that less people are studying particularly religion, theology, and religious studies at at higher education, particularly in England, uh, and philosophy for that matter. And I suspect you could do research that would show that um, the introduction of tuition fees has uh, meant that these subjects which may be viewed as soft Mm. or peripheral subjects have uh, been marginalised or uh, deprioritised, which is... usually ironic given they actually are core to the human experience <laughs> um but uh, there you go
2: yeah and a lot of political debate about them as well and, and and to not have that kind of expertise in in academia is potentially quite damaging for that as well so with the declining number then of, of of people potentially training to be teachers what what's the what's the view across um schools then in terms of provision has it changed significantly in the last kind of decade or so or what what's the kind of
3: it's very kind of hard to get a handle on that the one the one kind of thing you can say is barometric is uh numbers for s q e national mm-hmm. qualifications yeah. r m p s higher uh the leaving uh, uh qualification i think it's about four thousand it's dropped a little in the last few years but it seems to have plateaued about then and to be holding steady and you've got Very, very successful departments where you have big numbers uh, studying higher RMPS, higher philosophy within the RMPS department as well. I was at school um, last term and 63 pupils at secondary school studying higher philosophy Mm -hmm. and two big classes. Um, So real appetite. Uh, amongst young people there. So you've definitely got, um, I think, a combination of things. You've got a popular teacher. If you combine that with a supportive management, who've got an enlightened view of the subject and what it can offer, then you tend to have flourishing and you have good numbers of uptake. As a a less positive note, one of the things I'm noticing, and colleagues in teacher education when we visit schools, is that with the creation of faculties instead of traditional departmental models, you've got modern studies, history, geography, and RMPS in a faculty that it's often the kind of um the bridesmaid subject, if you like. And along with that, we've noticed a worrying trend in those faculties for teachers to be invited to teach disciplines which are not their own. So you've got our social subjects, uh, curriculum, and everyone takes a turn teaching the S1's history, geography, monasteries, mm-hmm. RNPS, and, and we think that's a really worrying trend, and although I said earlier that the GTCS are, are good gatekeepers, it sounds like the gate's in good order, but maybe the fence is missing nowadays, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, yeah. um, so that's something I'm working on just now myself, and my colleague Will Barlow of a National Survey, we've got 1,200 responses, and the results are very powerfully suggesting that um Teachers are not a big fans of this, and one of the things that's happening is that subjects are losing status, they're losing voice, <laughs> and losing expertise as well. And I think that certainly could be levelled at RMPs. Is there anything in terms of the current
2: curriculum then that you think still? I mean, obviously Education Scotland did a big review of, of, of RMPs a number of years ago, but is there is there still kind of elements of the kind of the curriculum that you think are maybe outstep with you know the way that other jurisdictions are providing this um, type of education
3: it's a, it's a really interesting question um, I think in many ways there's great things in Scottish yep. RNPS uh, I think our commitment to our ongoing commitment to what's called the personal search approach mm-hmm. which invites children to develop their own views yep. and like their own life experiences is, is one that's encouraging rational autonomy democratic mm-hmm. thinking it's empowering for the children I think that's really helpful um, on the negative side, I'd say that RME, RMPS policy in Scotland is still hamstrung by certain historical statutes. So you've got two things, two aspects of that, I would argue, or um, well, three, actually, I think. One, one you've got the, the retention of the conscience clause, which continues to give everyone the suspicion that something dodgy is going on yes. in mm-hmm. our subject area uh, when... In the vast majority of cases, it's not, and you're equally likely to be indoctrinated in a politics discussion in in modern studies or in an English discussion about aesthetics, as you might be in an RMPS lesson. In fact, I would say RMPS staff are much more sensitive, perhaps because of the existence of the clause, to the possibility of indoctrination than other other teachers are. The second thing would be the ongoing connection with the religious observance. Uh, And that's only recently, only very recently started to be kind of divorced in policy language in the memoranda that we get from the Scottish government. But before then, it was still very much connected, Mm -hmm. Uh, RME and RO seem to be joined at the hip. And that's evident in research I've done, uh, which shows that particularly in the primary sector, you still got head teachers who will devolve the RME lessons to the chaplain, Mm you still got RME lessons meant to be happening in the assembly event where, in fact, you've got uh, religious observance taking place. And I think that's, that's an ongoing issue, particularly in the primary setting. And the third thing, I think, is the way that the Curriculum for Excellence described the, the strands that are to be taught, for me, is, is an ongoing issue in that you've still got Christianity as a separate strand. Yep. You've got world religions selected for study, and then you've got the development of beliefs and values. So the appearance is still very much one of uh, platforming or privileging a uh, particular tradition, which you know the arguments are well rehearsed for that in terms of historical uh, significance, influence on Scottish society, which I completely understand. But that's really for me a discussion within the history classroom, yeah. uh, within the RME classroom. It should be just actually I would just make it wisdom traditions, and that's a much more inclusive approach. Because a fourth problem for me might be that the traditions like humanism. Are not seen as, yeah, it's that there's no, there doesn't seem to be parity. The way that humanism is described, it's always as a kind of an appendix. Pupils are invited, for example, in the context of discussing Christianity, to acknowledge that there may be non religious approaches to life also. So it's almost like a shadow, which is, I think, problematic as well. So I, I would, if I was going to be rewriting the curriculum for excellence, I would just have wisdom traditions and, and a very inclusive field. It would be.
2: It's interesting, I've noticed that from our organization's perspective, you know, we get in touch with particular RME teacher, teachers, RMPS and, teachers, and pupils get in touch when they're writing assessments and stuff like that for a, for a, for a humanist view on a sort of whole variety of interesting topics, I have to say. Um, but it's interesting that we are often really only invited on that kind of moral questions issue, and that's probably because they're writing a piece where I'm going to compare, you know, what does a Christian think and here's what a humanist thinks, on say abortion as a a common topic that's chosen, but you are not very often thought of in terms of that traditions and that how do you mark life events. And of course, you know, humanist marriage now is, there's more humanist marriages than all Christian marriages combined. So it's a big part of society, but it's not reflected, I don't think, in terms of, you know, recognition on that side of, you know, how do you live your life and how do you celebrate life? Whereas, you know, we are involved in the kind of moral compass issues, if that makes sense.
3: Absolutely. Um, this is this reflects an ongoing work I've been doing throughout my entire career as, as a lecturer at Aberdeen, is to look at trying to make sure that what happens in the RMPS classroom is more in tune with society. Mm. Uh, and we'd always, the pace of change, if I'm honest, is fairly glacial on that front. And that May maybe happening for a variety of reasons, none of which are really excusable, but one of which might be a degree of political cowardice to, to grapple with that, to open the statutes of 1872 and let's have a proper discussion about the Conscience Clause, religious observance, let's have a proper discussion about recognising that actually Scotland is the most secular jurisdiction in the UK and that rites of passage like you say are happening in a different way nowadays and that needs to be reflected in our classroom.
2: You touched before uh, this is something that I think you know we hear a a lot and we get you know people get in touch when they're a bit uh, concerned about the type of religious observance that is offered and I wonder if potentially the impact that sometimes religious observance has so that's obviously not just for anyone listening that's not what teachers are delivering that's an external provider usually from a from a religious group that would, would, would come in and provide uh, spiritual development which is what the, the guidance talks about I wonder if the inclusion of that during the school day has a negative impact on young people wanting to take the subject there's other research out there that says you know RO is done to us and we don't really want to be there and there's not a, you know there's not a constructive relationship with RO Whereas that's probably different for the RE classroom, but perhaps our MPS is being impacted by that kind of relationship, where they see it. Pupils might see it all as the same thing.
3: Yeah, indeed, uh, they, they may may conflate the things uh, like policies done, like some head teachers continue to do. And there's there's issues around teachers here as well. I mean, the pupils have got well, no, sorry, the parents have got the right of conscientious withdrawal. Yes. The pupils don't. No, um, there's. Human Rights uh, Convention issues there, Article 14, you know, rights of freedom of belief, et cetera. Um, teachers don't have a right of conscientious withdrawal either. I've sat in many assemblies where I really agree what was what was being said. But contractually, I had to be there for the young people. Uh, but your point is a good one. Um, I think that some pupils can uh, connect the two. And for other pupils, it can create a little dissonance in their minds, you know, saying, well, oh, hang on, wait a minute, you know, Mr. Nixon, his classroom's... Talking about philosophical, faith-neutral approach to life and our, our, our study. And then we go to the assembly and suddenly the word we mm-hmm. is being used, you know, when we pray and uh, yeah. we know that God listens and things like this. And these are the kind of words I've heard a lot. So there's a real cognitive distance for the young people there.
2: Yeah.
3: But most of them manage to navigate that well. Yeah. Although I've seen myself, you know, um vividly remember, you know, the kids in first year getting their Gideon's Bibles handed out to them mm-hmm. in assembly. And, you know, well-meaning, you know, slightly misguided maybe they were, many of them rescuing the little red books that were being scattered around the school after the event and hand them to me saying, this is for you, Mr Nixon, we know this is your kind of stuff. <laughs> so that's how some of them dealt with it.
2: Mm. I think also as well that, you know, one of the, the issues is still seen with the religious observers is that still, despite the attempt to change to time for reflection model that never really took off, still dominated by... You know, Christian churches uh, as the people who have always done it, and therefore that's that who's who continues to do it, and that's quite a step with the growing um, religious minorities as well. Populations, particularly in the central belt of Scotland, where we now have you know significant numbers of pupils in some areas from Muslim traditions, will be from Jewish traditions, will be from uh, Buddhist, Sikh, Hindu traditions. I suppose. You know, yes, you can opt your child out, but realistically, how many parents want to have their child sat in a different room while all their peers go off and do something different? You know, there's there's something about that whole opting out that's quite has it has the potential to paint that child as a bit odd or different or something, and I don't think that that's particularly helpful when. When you've just talked about RMPS curriculum trying to bring communities together, you have this <coughs> event that's happening that's almost driving the school community apart.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a double stigmatisation of the child, you know, despite all educational authorities kind of uh, rhetoric about inclusion, it's, it remains a real blind spot. I've asked, you know, what happens when the children get withdrawn from your lessons? and some teachers saying, well, they sit in the corridor, we put a desk outside the room for them. <laughs> Which is shocking to me.
0: Some really interesting ideas. Thanks, Fraser and Professor Nixon. Now I'm going to hand over to Brian Eggo of the Glasgow Skeptics. In this podcast, Brian asks, what is the harm in faith schools?
4: Picture the scene. It's early April, just before the Easter break from school. Lurking on the other side of the holidays are examinations, which are amongst the most important milestones in a young person's life. The results of those will, in many cases, have a significant bearing on their future. Every class is crucial, and teachers will try to squeeze as much content and reinforcement of learning in as they can with the time they have. But many classes today are cancelled, and the time is spent marching the pupils to the church down the road for some mandatory religious observation. No permission slips arrive in advance for parents, no choices given to the pupils. It's a one-size-fits-all sermon during school time. What kind of theocratic hellhole is this? Well, this is a non-denominational school in Scotland, in the 21st century. How do I know this? Because it was my older daughter that got pulled in front of the pulpit when she really should have been studying. Good news though kids, opting out is easy. All you need is a willing parent or guardian to contact the school and do it for you. Cerebral autonomy isn't all it's cracked up to be anyway. Now I've never been a believer myself and it's been a long time since I was at school, but I can still belt out the Lord's Prayer no bother and could probably lip sync along to a bundle of hymns more convincingly than many Christians. This is brain space which I could put to much better use but it appears to be permanently branded in my primate hard drive. The type of religious observance that goes on in our schools varies greatly these days, most probably because multiculturalism is on the rise and religiosity is on the decline. Add to that the fact that the Scottish Government's Curriculum for Excellence document on religious observance is suitably wishy-washy in that respect. So much leeway is given to the whims of the senior teaching staff on a school-by-school basis. That is, of course, if it's a non-denominational school. If you're unfortunate enough to be a young person whose parents or guardians are religious, or are willing to pretend to be religious to get you into a denominational school that's conveniently near your house or has a good reputation, or both, then the guidance is clear. When it comes to denominational schools in Scotland, the vast majority of them are Roman Catholic. So bad luck if you're a different flavour of Christian or Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, Hindu, Pastafarian or whatever. The Scottish Government is happy to give carte blanche to Roman Catholic schools though. Quote, The Scottish Government welcomes the tradition that, in Roman Catholic denominational schools, Catholic liturgy will largely shape the nature and frequency of religious observance activities in the classroom and in the wider school community. Quote. Being a good sceptic though, we have to ask the most important question, what's the harm? Well, let's put aside the invasion of valuable study time and brain space in general that I've covered already. Let's also put aside the ability of those Catholic schools to discriminate against what pupils they admit and what teachers they hire, not counting the ones who pretend to be Catholic just to get the job. I know a few of those. Don't worry, though, folks. Your secret's safe with me. But what other harms are being done here? Well, sectarianism is still a huge problem in Scotland. Of course, it's impossible to pin this on one thing, But it's safe to say that segregating our children by religion during their formative years certainly doesn't help the situation. Social attitudes are also a problem. You don't have to be religious to be a homophobe or a transphobe, but it really helps. Of course, correlation doesn't equal causation, so it's important to point at actual evidence of a link. And you can do that by referring to holy books or words that are spoken or written by prominent members of the religions in question. It's very easy to find. Issues around bodily autonomy also appear to be a problem, as do objections to evidence-based sex education. Thankfully, we don't see too much in the way of promotion of creationism in our schools, although it has happened a non-zero number of times. Check out the infiltration of non-denominational Kirkton Home Primary School in my hometown of East Kilbride by religious zealots for years in the early 2010s for one particularly nasty example of that. Let's be very clear though, while religious observance appears to do more harm than good, education about religion could and should be much better as well. For evidence of that, Hop across the North Sea to the god-forsaken land of heathens that is Sweden. A wide and varied curriculum about different religions, their philosophies and traditions is mandatory throughout the school life. A Swedish child will know more about Christianity than a Scottish child whose parents aren't Christians. They will know more about Islam than a Scottish child whose parents aren't Muslims. And so on. This broad coverage breeds understanding, empathy, and interesting discussions about beliefs and values carried out in a respectful manner. Things certainly aren't broken here in Scotland, but they could be much, much better. I don't have all the answers of course, but remember that perfect is the enemy of good. So let's make a change for the better.
0: Thanks Brian. Who knew a discussion about faith skills could be so amusing? In this final segment of the podcast, we hand the reins over to Will Norton, our newly appointed Policy and Campaigns Officer.
5: Hi there, and welcome to this next part of the Humankind podcast, where we're going to be looking at religious observance within education systems around Europe. And we're going to start with Scotland. So we have the honour of being joined by Rosie Mackay today, who has also had the honour of doing her whole education system through Scotland. Yep. So welcome, Rosie. Welcome on to the Humankind podcast. Yeah, of course. So religious observance is when members of a religious organisation come into schools from outside to spiritually develop you. Do you remember this during your schooling? Do you have experience with this?
6: Yes. So I've had... Uh, I went to two different schools and I had, in both times, had people come in and kind of talk to us mostly about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had... A reverend work at our school, so she would do the church services and she would also do like the I think they're called RE, RE lessons as well.
5: I'm guessing and taking into account that that was more of a Christian predominantly. Yeah, I
6: don't think I have any experience of anything else. I don't remember um, anyone coming in about like Judaism or Muslim or anything like that. Nothing, I can't think of any other.
5: I mean, that's a common theme throughout Scotland. Interestingly, as well, despite it being mostly Christian, 73% of Scots now identify themselves as atheist. Do you believe that not having the option to opt out was also a little bit unsure and easy maybe for you? Yeah,
6: especially sitting through church services where I'm surrounded by people who are who, who are Christian and I feel like I'm almost intruding on their time. You know, I it's difficult because it's not something that I believe in. For me, it's not enjoyable. But I also want to remain respectful of the people who are there, who are also doing that. It's um, it's definitely been a bit of a, an odd one.
5: I think respect is such a huge thing when discussing religion. And I think the ability to opt out, are you saying that would give you more free range to respect religion?
6: I think, yes. So within just like these, obviously like school lessons are different. I, I want to learn about them, to know about them. But within going to these church services, especially like, or people coming in and talking to you about their religion, I've, to try and almost like turn you to that religion and sometimes. I prefer not to be a part of it. I have made that decision over time to where I stand. There was times where I thought I believed in God when I was younger, but I didn't know what, really what it was about. I was educated on it, and now I've decided where I stand. I completely respect someone if they believe in Christianity. I respect someone if they're Muslim, I respect someone if they are Jewish, and I think the same respect to work always.
5: I think it's really interesting to ask you now, as a Scot, as a proud Scot, you've lived all your life in Scotland, in Edinburgh. It makes me
6: sound so blame.
5: <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. I'm English full and three, so yeah. no <laughs> Obviously, being from Edinburgh, from Scotland, proud Scot, are you aware that the UN and the UN Commission on the Rights of Children actually has gone against Scotland saying that children should be able to opt out? Are you aware that the Scottish government hasn't? I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and it's a big part of an. Um, new campaign Leave Those Kids Alone. We want to educate the Scottish public into knowing that the UN, this goes against what the UN is saying, the fact that we're not being offered the the opt-out here in Scotland. Does that affect your opinions on the way that the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Government?
6: I think hearing that from you is definitely like a bit eye-opening. Mm. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was happening. No, I, I agree with that. I definitely think that people should know that, that that's something that we're fighting against. Um, I really believe that education is a big solution to a lot of things and having that mm. being educated on that we are trying to allow everybody to be believe what they believe. And not be forced upon them. I yeah, I didn't know that and it's kind of like, you know, I don't have words. I'm like, okay, but I didn't know that happening. Yeah,
5: completely. <laughs> really, it's just I remember when I researched it for the first time I was shocked as well. And it's something that we are trying to get involved. And it's lovely to hear the opinions of a young person, a young Scottish person on this matter. So thank you so much for coming on today. And yeah, thank you so much. I am here with Christian Canarella. Christian, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. If you just tell us a little bit further about you, where you went to school, where you're from, because you really are a full citizen of
7: Europe, you could say. Hi well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to this podcast today. I grew up in Italy, in Rome, and my parents are Italian and German. So I up in Rome, went to a German school in Rome, then moved on and and moved to Germany. So it
5: is fair to say you have been to school across that region of Europe, the Italian-German regions. So if you could actually just talk to me a little bit about how religion was incorporated into your education, specifically with regard to religious observance has there anything similar in italy in germany what's the situation do you have these priests and vicars coming in and preaching to you or is it something completely and wholly different
7: no it's absolutely different both in italy and in germany of course religious studies are part of uh, school education however in both countries they were 100 percent optional so students had the option to opt out from religious studies, which usually would only take place once a week, once or twice a week, and there wouldn't be any, let's say, priests coming to school, it would just be a normal teacher. However, this is the only subject in school, specifically in Italy, that would be uh, 100% optional and not compulsory. So I'm a bit surprised to, I was a bit surprised to get to know that in Scotland, these sort of activities happen in school. So religion is part of school education in Italy. However, it's not imposed on you. Students have complete control over what religious studies they want to take part in school. For example, in, my, uh, in Italy, we had a very multi-religious school class and a few students, I would say a third, opted out on religious studies and two thirds took part. And uh, there was no pressure at all from our teachers to opt in, I would say.
5: I think it's very important to remember as well, and like you're saying, religious education and religious studies are very different to religious observance. I think it comes to a to most people to know, and here at HSS, we're very much trying to portray this forward to more people, is that the UN Convention on the Rights of a Child, the UNCRC, states that this religious observance should be opt out and children should be able to choose whether they do and scotland does not follow that and i think it's such a shock whenever discussed with anyone just how scotland is going against the advice and the recommendations of the u.n and i'm you're nodding so i'm guessing you uh, agree with that from an outsider's perspective almost
7: oh a 100 i have to say i was shocked when i got to know that religious observance happens in Scottish schools, it's completely different than from what I've experienced in Italy and Germany and you would not really expect a country like Italy, for example, which has a huge Catholic um, influence to have far more choice for students than in Scotland. Uh, so I was shocked that Scotland, the Scottish school system goes against what's recommended by the UN. and um, as you said, religious observance and religious studies are also completely different because religious studies were more like the study of different religions and what what they mean and what they're trying to convey, whereas religious observance is almost like enforcing a religion to students, which is definitely not what should be happening in 2022.
5: Completely. And I think that is the position that here at HSS we have. And we're really trying to move forward with that, so thank you for discussing that with us. While I am with you, obviously being Italian, we must talk about the other HSS policy topic of assisted dying. We're working so closely on Liam MacArthur MSP's bill. With that, to try and legalise it, Italy has just legalised it. How does that feel?
7: It definitely feels good that in a country like Italy, this is now happening, even though I have to say it's still, while well, it's legal, it's still a very difficult process and there's still lots of barriers, but it's a step forward, definitely in the right direction, because it's something that thousands of people, I would say, need every year in every country. And it's a very delicate topic that is definitely taking a step forward. I definitely would like to see Scotland going in the same direction. Once again, Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks Will for inviting me. a pleasure to be here.
0: If you would like to find out more about our campaign to end compulsory religious education in Scottish schools, head to the campaign page on our website and sign the My Beliefs, My Choice petition. Or check out the information for children, young people and parents that sets out your rights to freedom of belief at school. We've put the links in the bio. If you've got any questions, comments or ideas for future episodes, you can email them to podcast at humanism.scot, tweet them to Humanist Society or follow the society on Facebook at Humanist Society Scotland. This episode was produced by Kerry Sutherland with thanks to Julia Conducey, Shona Sharp, Professor Graham Nixon, Fraser Sutherland, Brian Egle, Will Norton, Lily Holdsworth, Rosie Mackey, Christian Cardella and was presented by me, Chelsea Shapure. All it's life for me to say is thank you for listening and goodbye.